we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and this is Pulse, staying a beat ahead. John Leake and Dr. Peter McCullough, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. I've been digging into the courage to face COVID-19. You're preventing hospitalization and death while battling the biopharmaceutical complex. But how, John, how did you get interested in this topic? And you got interested rather early on, right? Pretty much straight away. It was March of 2020. I was home visiting my family for Christmas, started reading the first reports, mostly coming out of Milan. And I lived in Italy for a while and was somewhat familiar with the situation over there in general. And there were a number of things about the reporting that just struck me as implausible. So I began to think, there's a propaganda campaign going on here. The question is why? What, what is the agenda? What, you know, what are we being asked to believe? So that was sort of the first moment in which I began to think, you know, this could be something like a true crime story. I've written a couple of true crime books. And, but pretty quickly I realized, in order to interpret this properly, I need a real top medical authority. And the question was, finding a top medical authority who is also questioning the orthodoxy that we were being told. And you know, I thought this is probably going to be a pretty tall order, but as luck would have it, the top authority who was also a leader of questioning the authority and actually publishing about it quickly. Uh, he lived two miles from my house in Dallas. So it was a very happy coincidence. Oh, so, so really, this was, you just looked and you saw Dr. Peter McCullough and oh, oh, it happens to be he's down the road. Literally. I mean, he'd already done his Senate testimony on November the 19th, 2020, and I saw that on C-SPAN, and I thought, this, this guy's a Dallas guy. I mean, the guy who's testifying before the U.S. Senate about questioning the orthodoxy, actually treating the illness in the outpatient setting, he lives two miles from my family home. Okay, well, so, and, and just very briefly, Peter, tell me about that, that first meeting, because, um, you know, you guys really dig into this whole process right, right from the beginning, like what happened with COVID, how it was, how the, the system, the country, the government dealt with it, and then also how some of the upstarts like yourselves dealt with it. Well, it was my first approach from an author that I found out uh, later on. John is a best-selling author, an award-winning author, and a true crime expert. And he invited me to an interview. So we went to a Dallas studio, and he simply sat behind the camera, asked me questions, and I gave him my responses. And I think what we both quickly came to recognize and appreciate is that there was a story here. And there was a powerful story. Part of it's about me and, 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 and the roles that I play, how I develop my thinking and my response. And then part of it was about a very, very big global development happening. So, Peter, I, I want to ask you about something uh, a bit off to the side right now. Because, you know, as much as 
you know, we've been looking at COVID, obsessed with COVID for well over two years now, right? It's almost like now we're, we're talking about a completely different disease, monkeypox, right? Oh, it's not an airborne virus, or at least the, 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 so, so, so the science books tell me. Um, and I, I've just heard a lot of different stuff about it. And there seems to be this, you know, increase in cases. There seems to be, you know, a kind of a media narrative emerging around this. And I wanted to, like, I just wanted to see how, how are you viewing this whole thing, this whole monkeypox question? The disease may be fear of the next contagion. And what we outline in our book, it, there was an, actually an entire response to pandemics and contagious illnesses being developed over the last decade. In fact, there was planning for this, informational planning. And when the news broke about monkeypox, an illness of which there are cases every single year, uh, in fact, there hasn't been a, a case that hasn't, you know, hasn't been a year where we've been devoid of cases. There are, are dozens, if not hundreds of cases, and now we've amassed a thousands of cases since it was first discovered. But why is it in the news cycle? Why are uh, pictures, uh, some pictures that are on the internet right now, Jan, are black and white? They look like they're decades old. So a brief summary, uh, monkeypox is in the orthopox virus family. It uh, was initially described in monkeys in the Congo Basin, 1958, first human case. So it jumped from, uh, from uh, primates to humans, 1970. U.S. outbreak in 2003, when pet prairie dogs were mixed with giant pouch uh, rats from the Congo Basin, they actually spread it to one another. Some, uh, some people got it in the United States. That's 2003. No deaths. It, it manifests as a pustular rash. It's in the same family as smallpox and camelpox and cowpox, uh, but monkeypox is not very communicable. It can spread from saliva and actually the liquid in the pustules. And what we had come to learn is that uh, over the past five years, there was planning. So uh, for an example, uh, there was a development of a vaccine and the vaccine is held by a company called Genios. It's a live attenuated vaccine. Monkeypox is of interest because whatever is done for smallpox works for monkeypox. And the thought is, if there was bioterrorism related to smallpox, which is still held uh, in some labs worldwide, if it ever got into uh, to nefarious hands that we would need something to manage smallpox bioterrorism. So enter monkeypox, there are parallels. So there's a Genios live attenuated vaccine. There is a drug called Ticoviramat or Tpox. That's a, a, a VP37 inhibitor. It's a, it's a cell surface uh, in, inhibitor works well. There is a well-developed uh, thought process about what we would do with monkeypox. There was a paper by Beer, another one by Simpson in 2019, summarizing decades of literature on monkeypox and what we would do if monkeypox was part of a bioterrorism attack. And then in March of 2021, there was a simulation tabletop exercise uh, by the Nuclear Threat Initiative, a think tank in Washington, and a Munich biosecurity group where they uh, had scenario planned a monkeypox bioterrorism event 
event that uh, in this case the monkeypox would be completely resistant to the Genios vaccine. It would lead to over 200 million deaths. Okay, again, it's just a theoretical tabletop planning exercise, but the release date for the bioterrorism attack was going to be May 15th of 2022, just seven days before the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos and the World Health Organization meeting in Switzerland regarding a global treaty for pandemic management. So the timing of this was so suspicious that uh, whoever the stakeholders are involved uh, could have had the idea of just using the reported cases of monkeypox, of which occurs worldwide, to juice the system with fear. So what in response to this was the U.S. government immediately uh, said that they had pre-purchased, they had actually purchased now, 13 million doses of the Genios vaccine in preparation for a monkeypox major outbreak in the United States. We had in April of, uh, April 22nd of 2022, a report from the CDC of a case in Dallas. There was a man who uh, flew from Africa to Dallas. He first went to Atlanta. He saw people there. He came to Dallas. He had lots of exposure, developed the classic monkeypox, ultimately was hospitalized in Dallas, I think largely for contagion control. They treated him with Ticoviramac or TPAX. He did fine, but the report comes out in the C CDC MMWR, you know, describing this case. In all of his case context, he didn't spread it to a single person, so it's not very transmissible. But the important point is on the author line there, there are over three dozen authors, and they're termed the CDC monkeypox response team. So we have had planning, a lot of planning for monkeypox, and this almost seems like it's event 201, you know, now for the next pandemic illness, the next business opportunity, if you will, for CEPI. I mean, that's that's fascinating. And of course, you know, you've been doing a lot of work sort of mapping out this the biopharmaceutical complex, as you describe it. Um, John, of course, I'm speaking to here. Um, that That's fascinating. So uh, the only thing that I have trouble with is this is this, this isn't a terribly communicable disease, right? Like it's it's only done by physical, essentially by physical contact, as I understand it. Unless there's some sort of crazy mutation that puts it into the air that would make it highly communicable, right? And how this plays out, how is this going to be convincing to the population, assuming there's a kind of injection of scare here? I mean, I think the guys who made the vaccine are are going to make out really well, and I think what this biopharmaceutical complexes discovered is there are all of these pathogens out there that could become an emergent disease pandemic. If you present it, if you take a few isolated cases and you say, oh dear, this is going to be this terrifying thing that, that goes nuclear, then it triggers all of this pandemic response, including the generation, the generation of huge amounts of money. And if you're positioned well within the complex, you, you know in advance you're going to be the recipient. Now the one really salient point in all of this is what these guys really like are vaccines. I mean, public health is actually a very complex thing. I mean, it's sanitation, it's the ecology of, of, of the country, it's the overall health condition of the population, the age of the population. But if you're hanging out with guys in the biopharmaceutical complex, you, you wouldn't know that there are these variables. It's just vaccinate, 
and that's it. Why is that? Why there there seems to be this inordinate focus on vaccines as a solution, even to something like a coronavirus, where there's, I mean, from what I've learned subsequently, there's a lot sorts of reasons why it doesn't make sense to use vaccines against a coronavirus. Yeah, yeah I mean, I I think it's a long-standing glory thing going back to Louis Pasteur and, and Jonas Salk and the immunology is the sexy part of all of this. You, in theory, you can actually prevent people from getting infected to begin with. And I think the public has been confused by this because there are very effective vaccines. I mean, in the childhood schedule, I mean, the tetanus and diphtheria and, and polio, particularly the trivalent polio, was, was very effective. But they prevent infection and transmission. So when we get to these messenger RNA vaccines that were sold to the world as this miracle new technology, you know, there's just this big belly flop. I mean, it doesn't prevent infection and transmission. That has not prevented or in any way discouraged this enormous endeavor to develop these things, um, even if there's not a whole lot of uh, promise or, or probability that they'll really work. I mean, that was the notable thing to me. Um, when SARS-CoV-2 arrived, the, the, two things that you see happening simultaneously. One is just straight out of the gate, it's unassailable to any treatment modality. Just nothing works. I mean, anyone who's suggesting that repurposed drugs will work on this is lying or is, 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 is fantasizing. The solution will be the vaccine. You think, well, how do you know that there will be a safe and effective, you seem to already know this. So what we discovered in our research and what we map out in our book is that this was being planned for well in advance. I would say the most monopolistic, sort of obsessive individual within the complex who has the highest profile and the most avenues to speak with the media and to pontificate about vaccines is Bill Gates. And we should always remember that he started his career as a monopolist. He, he wanted every man, woman, and child on earth to have a Windows operating system. And he seems to have sort of shifted his monopolistic spirit from the software business to, to the vaccine business. Fascinating uh, observation. I guess the, the other piece around the vaccines, and, and Peter, we've talked about this in the past before, um, is this sort of the, the, the side effects, right? Um, every vaccine has them. We know that there has been sort of a, I guess, an orthodoxy in public health in the U.S. and Canada where you kind of downplay the realities of that because you, maybe you're afraid that people won't get vaccinated if they know there's even a small chance, right? Now, but all of that has been put a, kind of into the fore, so to speak, with, with these COVID vaccines, right? Um, and I guess, where, where are we at in terms of understanding at this point, uh, Peter, uh, the, the, the realities around some of these side effects and uh, harms and so forth? You know, in our book, uh, we do fully elucidate uh, CEPI or the Center for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation. It was in 2017 formed by the World Economic Forum and the Gates Foundation. It uh, produced a business plan 
the business plan uh, said that the next pandemic will be a business opportunity and that CEPI's response to the business opportunity will be development of vaccines. No mention of treatments whatsoever. This was absolutely telegraphed from the beginning. 2010, Gates says it's the decade of the vaccines. Later on, Gates announces at meetings that the return on investment of vaccines is 20 to 1, anything else that he's done. It is clear the system is juiced for a vaccine. Now bring in the messenger RNA and adenoviral DNA vaccines. So that's Pfizer, Moderna, messenger RNA, adenoviral is Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca. But there's six. There's 16 total vaccines. So we have the uh, killed virus vaccines, Coronavac, Sinovac. We have uh, Novavax and Corbivax, which are antigen-based vaccines, and many others coming. There is actually a a a, a panoply of vaccines out there for this respiratory illness. So a shot in the arm protected against a sinus infection. Not much of a track record there, honestly, in terms of efficacy. The flu vaccine this year, uh, the official efficacy, vaccine efficacy number was 17%. Recently, the 13 valent pneumococcal vaccine, its efficacy was published in the major literature for uh, preventing, we, we believe me, we have advocated Pneumovax my entire career as an internist and cardiologist. I've been advocating this for our seniors. The vaccine efficacy come, comes back for Pneumovax for protecting against this upper respiratory tract infection and pneumonia, 9%. We're talking, there isn't a single shot in the arm that does virtually anything for a respiratory illness. And so the COVID vaccine come and with an implicit talking point. And the talking point is, they are safe and they are effective and you will take them, period. No discussions after that, no official discussions on safety and efficacy, no guarantee for reevaluation, no monthly review of safety. The safety was assumed, it was assumed. And the Chinese published a paper, it was interesting, they published a paper early on as they started to look at particularly the messenger RNA vaccines and they were looking at blood test results and people had taken the vaccines and they said we anticipate problems when the vaccines are broadly used in a population that has background medical problems high blood pressure diabetes cancers heart disease lung disease uh, blood diseases remember in the vaccine programs Pfizer Moderna Johnson & Johnson large fractions were perfectly healthy people with no background conditions and very importantly no prior SARS-CoV-2 exposure None. Now we enter in all of these new variables and the idea that the vaccines were pre-assumed to be safe and effective and were going to be broadly used on everyone, even people not previously tested, like pregnant women, women of childbearing potential can't guarantee contraception, COVID recovery patients, suspected COVID recovery patients. And so what we've learned is an unbelievable story of poor safety. In fact, uh, I think by basically a biological catastrophe on our hands uh, through court-ordered documents mm. that the FDA did not want to release to America for 55 years, court-ordered documents of the Pfizer program that the FDA wanted to block to Americans. In the court proceedings, lead attorneys Aaron Siri pressing for the release of the Pfizer, Pfizer dossier, we learned that there was uh, 1,223 deaths within 90 days of release of the Pfizer program worldwide. The standard is typically 50 deaths for some widely used product, take it off the market, it's not safe, something's wrong. 
something is wrong. Maybe it's the use of multi-use vials. Uh, where multiple needles are now jabbing into it. Maybe it's becoming hypersulfated. Maybe there are other things that are going on. It's being corrupted in some way. We know the messenger RNA is is uh, is very uh, finicky. It's, it can be unstable. There's lipid nanoparticles, supercooling. So you know th there was a big deal about its stability, and maybe a lack of stability was translating into something that was injurious to the population. So the deaths continued to skyrocket. There was no stopping of the program. The CDC faithfully was recording the deaths in the vaccine adverse event reporting system. And on the domestic side of VAERS, we now have hit 13,000 deaths that have occurred after the vaccine where people report to it. Obviously the person died, they can't report it. So it was the doctor, the coroner, the nurse, paramedic, the nursing home worker. Someone's reporting it to VAERS. Most of the time, 86% of the time we know from prior studies, it's it's not the patient's family. It's, it's a healthcare worker. That is astounding. We have never let a product run like this for uh, this period of time without revisiting safety, without reporting safety, without even questioning safety and death being the final outcome. Now there is an array of internally consistent non-fatal outcomes that the FDA agrees to, including heart damage with Pfizer Moderna, blood clots with uh, Johnson & Johnson, but also seen in Pfizer Moderna, immune system disorders, including multi-system inflammatory syndrome, and then blood disorders, a whole variety of them, including vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia. In total, we have a thousand peer-reviewed papers now on vaccine injuries, fatal and non-fatal, 200 on myocarditis, and the program is going strong with the stakeholders. Our program is led by our CDC and FDA. That's a huge mistake to have the FDA lead a clinical program. They should be the safety watchdog. But when they're told to execute getting a needle in every arm, they're turning a blind eye to safety, and Americans are suffering. In the book, John, you talk about just some actual kind of basic conceptual errors in terms of you know how even these vaccines were conceived in the first place. You can get into that a little bit. Well, I, the public has been led to believe that the vaccines that were presented to us at the end of 2020 were in the same lineage as the vaccines that we all grew up with and have come to trust and, and to, to, to understand you know, are safe and effective. What I think a lot of the public didn't understand is this is a completely novel technology. I mean, there are guys at MIT that were theorizing about this in the late 70s, but it didn't really start coming on in terms of development until after 2005. It's not a conventional vaccine um, in the sense that you take an attenuated virus or bacterium or part of the toxin of a bacterium. You're in effect inducing natural immunity by giving the body an inoculum that's a weakened form of the thing that you would encounter in the wild. These are genetic transfer technologies. You're actually injecting messenger RNA that codes for the production of the spike protein. So this is Star Trek stuff. And any time, I mean anyone who studied the history of science will quickly ascertain that when something a novel technology is developed in great haste. And in this, they actually told us of the haste. It's Operation 
warp speed, you know, hit the hyperdrive, you know, we'll have this new thing ready to rock and roll on the entire Earth's population in a matter of a couple of months. So this is just fantastically absurd. I mean, we, we would have needed years of, you know, let's use it on a certain high-risk part of the population, maybe older people that don't have that many years left, see how they do. Dr. McCullough can address safety procedures that have conventionally been developed. But all this was just thrown out the window with foresight. I mean, again, going back to the sort of godfather of the biopharmaceutical complex in April of 2020 he was saying in op-eds in the Washington Post no drugs work against this the only thing that will enable us to return to normal is a new vaccine and we are feverishly at work my foundation is playing a pivotal role in this in developing it. And when every man, woman, and child in the world is vaccinated with these new t vaccines that are right now in development, then we will, we, we will be able to return to normalcy. I mean, just on the face of it, this is just crazy. You know, we have uh, a parallel comment that's important. It came from an influential doctor, Dr. Rubin, the editor of New England Journal of Medicine. And in the fall of 2021 pediatric meetings, he said, he says, we will never know if these are safe in children. We're just going to have to widely deploy it and see what happens. We're never going to learn about how safe the vaccine is unless we start giving it. Yeah, that's just the way it goes. Probably one of the most reckless statements I've ever I mean, heard. That, that sounds said. like we're doing the you know experiment in vivo from the beginning. It seems like this was going to be the case. There hasn't been any discussion of active review of anything, dose, uh, patient who receives it, uh, uh, any other modifications. Never have we had a wide-scale program where there hasn't been modifications. We were actually promised vaccines that would cover Omicron in March of 2022. Nothing. Now, oh, that's been pushed off to the fall. Don't hear any updates on this. Doesn't seem to be any urgency. We, you know, Novavax came in with their antigen-based vaccine, and they had clinical trials data showing as good efficacy as Pfizer and Moderna in June of 2021. People were anxiously looking at Novavax, an antigen-based vaccine. They, at least Novavax had tested 25 micrograms versus 5 micrograms, 800-person U.S. company. There was great enthusiasm from Novavax because it's, it's, it's not genetic. We don't have to worry about it getting into our cells. We simply would respond to the spike protein inoculum. No word, no word. Then we heard, well, uh, there's questions regarding if it's manufacturing standards. It's using a insect-based, moth-based type of preparation to produce it. It's, it's going to be labor-intensive to produce it. But in fact, to this day, here we are in 2022, no Novavax on the U.S. market, it's on the European market, it's in Australia, and Americans don't seem to be clamoring for this. Uh, I don't hear any talk about it in the United States. That has been uh, an interview that I undertook with Jan Jekelek and, and true crime bestselling author John Leake. We did it in uh, a Washington studio for the Epoch Times American Thought Leaders and uh, was absolutely a terrific 
experiencing great content. I think Jan Jakovic is one of the top journalists out there right now. Epoch Times, if you haven't checked it out, is really on fire in terms of bringing truth uh, to the world on the pandemic. Uh, so they've done a, a terrific, uh, a terrific work on this. This is Pulse. We're staying a beat ahead. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's healthy cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use healthy cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The immune super boost, focus and memory, and the REM sleep supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best, freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. There are microbes in the air and they're in your house and the Genesis Fogger is the solution. This is a mobile fogger that uses a unique technology to give a non-toxic dry mist to cleanse the air and cleanse your rooms of microbes, whether they be bacterial, fungal, or viral, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. So go to the Genesis Fogger website and use the promo code OUTLOUD for a discount on your purchase of the model and get going with a cleaner house as there could be more microbes on the way. We're concerned about not only the current pandemic, but future ones. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We're back with Pulse, and we've been reviewing an interview on American Thought Leaders uh, with myself, true crime author John Leake, and my co-author on the book Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Deaths, and Jan Jakovic, 
who is uh, a lead journalist for Epoch Times, and he is the host of American Thought Leaders. Let's pick up on the interview. Genetic-based vaccine? You know, speaking about uh, vac- the use of these genetic vaccines in children, there's, uh, from what I understand, right, the, the, the FDA is looking to try to approve for, I think it's the 5 to 11 age cohort. And, but, and they're basically, it seems like they're circumventing their expert panel. But they have circumvented uh, any need for clinical outcomes. They've been reliant on what's called uh, uh, antibody testing, just looking for neutralizing antibodies. Remember, the virus has mutated multiple times. So even the assays for neutralizing antibodies may be using reagents that are based on prior genetic code. Nobody really knows. Certainly I don't. Uh, the reliability of an antibody neutralizing assay to what it would matter to Omicron, which is basically like a mild head cold, for by and large everyone, who would even know? But we don't have a clinical, from the original clinical trials, original randomized trials, since that point forward, we have not had any convincing evidence that the vaccines work in stopping SARS-CoV-2 upper respiratory infection. And we've never had, never had in any clinical trial, a reduction in hospitalization or in death. In fact, with the Pfizer program, which is the biggest one, there's slightly more deaths with Pfizer than placebo. So we've actually never had a randomized trial claim. And the FDA has never get granted these claims that the vaccines reduced hospitalization and death, which is what Americans care about. From my understanding at this point, the one thing that these vaccines, the genetic vaccines actually do effectively is reduce hospitalization and death, but not, of course, tra- disease transfection and transmission. That's a false claim. And this may be a shock to the audience. I'm a cardiologist, I can tell you. When we have a new product in my field, let's say a product for heart failure, for a company to make the claim that a heart failure drug reduces hospitalization and death, which are the two outcomes in heart failure, no different than the two outcomes of interest in COVID-19, the clinical trial must have a primary endpoint that is the composite of hospitalization and death. Patients must be randomized to active drug or product or placebo, and it must show a reduction in hospitalization and death. None of the vaccines have had clinical trials done versus placebo with that composite endpoint. None of them. And even in the observed data in clinical trials, there hasn't been any trend towards reducing hospitalization and death. The FDA, therefore, has never granted a claim. Believe me, if the vaccine manufacturer showed reduction in hospitalization and death, in randomized data versus placebo, they would have granted that claim. That would have been the most powerful thing, but they never had it. What's happened over time is a false narrative that's developed from observational data. And what we've seen is the following. In observational data, there has been a series, a multitude of biased analyses by investigators and doctors and those in the biopharmaceutical complex who are invested in trying to promote the vaccines, claiming that the vaccines reduce the severity of illness and reduce hospitalization and death. And how are they putting these biased analyses forward? Number one, the electronic medical records for almost all these systems have a default of unvaccinated. So when someone comes in the hospital, if no one really tries to ask the patient with their vaccine card and validate things, they remain, even if they're vaccinated, they remain counted as an unvaccinated. Number two, differential testing. Our CDC has said for the longest time, if one is unvaccinated, get a COVID test. But if you're vaccinated, no, don't get a COVID test if you come to the hospital for a variety of reasons. Number three, 
no adjudication of why they're in the hospital. So now we have people coming in with ankle sprains and all different types of things. People unvaccinated getting, getting COVID testing, giving an opportunity to, in a sense, create a COVID case in the hospital. Mm. Number four, we have a situation where there is a difference in who takes a vaccine versus not. Those who take the vaccine are more worried. So someone who takes a vaccine, they're far more likely to get early treatment. And early treatment is what reduces hospitalization and death. Not vaccines, it's early treatment. But if the, clin if the uh, bias studies may have no accounting of early treatment, which they never do, those who've, who've gotten a vaccine but they get early treatment, i.e., if you noticed recently, Anderson Cooper and Bill Gates get COVID-19 together. Anderson takes three shots, Bill Gates takes four shots, they're talking, They've both taken Paxlovid. Kamala Harris gets COVID-19. She took Paxlovid. So I can tell you, those who've taken the vaccine are much more likely to have gotten early treatment, which really is the driver for reducing hospitalization and death. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, the groups aren't randomized. So there is a bevy of biased studies creating a false illusion that the vaccines reduce hospitalization and death. And you know it's false for the following reason. Most of these studies don't have any time delineation. That vaccine is, they could have had a vaccine a year and a half ago. Wait a minute, everyone agrees the vaccines run out of any protection after six months. So that's a, a fatal flaw. Another fatal flaw is that there's disagreement among countries. So in the United States, while there was a false narrative saying that this is a crisis of the unvaccinated in the summer of 2021, Israel was, was publishing, the Israeli uh, uh, health agencies were publishing the vast majority of Israelis in the hospital and dying were fully vaccinated. And then the Europeans reported that. And then the uh, uh, UK, Scottish and the UK health security agencies dutifully reported that indeed the vast majority of people in the hospital were fully vaccinated. And they actually did keep track of who was fully vaccinated by the definitions. Mm. And now the province of Ontario pouring in data, those in the hospital are far more likely to the tune of 70, 80, 90% are fully vaccinated. So it's a, been a complete false narrative that the vaccines pr uh, prevent severe disease. And you can, that is a complete analysis and I'll stand behind it. One of the things that we examine in our book is this glaring contradiction. And we, I spent a whole day interviewing the Yale professor Harvey Risch, who's been one of Dr. McCullough's most trusted and talented colleagues in all of this. And you know, one of the things that I talked about with Harvey Risch was this, un, this unending, relentlessly rigorous standard that was applied to any repurposed drugs or supplements for treating the illness. And it was this, it has, in order to make any claims about the efficacy of these repurposed drugs, it has to be a huge, randomized, double placebo controlled trial. And if you don't actually meet that standard, then you can't make any claims about efficacy. But then when we come to the vaccines, which are brand new, we don't have experience of using these on a large human population, unlike, for example, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which have been around for decades. They have very well-known safety profiles. Now we jump to the vaccines in which the standards that were being applied or, or that were being proclaimed must be applied against, against early treatment they're just thrown out the window. So suddenly the, the methodology and the rigor of, of, of ascertaining 
safety and efficacy is just thrown out the window with the vaccines. There's so many biases in this. There's also outright academic fraud, which we, which was admitted. I mean, papers submitted to prestigious medical journals subsequently retracted. I mean, we, we, we suddenly see that public medical policy becomes this massive propaganda endeavor. I mean, I know from my conversations with Dr. McCullough, he's just been stunned by what has happened to the world of academic publishing. So we, we document all of this, and you see this unfolding in real time, and, and the only logical conclusion that one can draw is that this, the way this pandemic has been presented to the public has been a a presentation that comes out of propaganda offices and organs and, and not not from unbiased scientific inquiry. So Peter, you were very early on looking for ways to treat people. You know, chapter 34 is where's the focus on sick people? And of course now we have proprietary drugs like Paxlovid, for example, that are that are in use. You talked about uh, you know certain high-profile people using them to treat. So what what is the state of treatment right now? And and frankly, you know, where where was the focus on sick people, and where is it now? That was a source of frustration among so many doctors. Is that at any given time we had a small number of acutely sick people. And if we would have focused our resources on them, which could have been done across the entire country, we could have, in my view, uh, in a sense, ended this. Because when patients receive forms of treatment, the infectivity period comes down from, it was as long as two weeks, can come down to just a few days. So there's much less spread to other people. And by reducing the intensity and the duration of symptoms, that's what triggers people to go to the hospital. We can reduce hospitalization and death, and vast majority of deaths occur in the hospital. So mechanistically, it made sense to treat the high-risk patients. What we saw from the very beginning, and still to this day, is a suppression of early treatment. And I, I think my breakout interview was with Tucker Carlson. I said, I said, I think it's intentional. I think early treatment is being suppressed in order to create more fear and suffering and hospitalization and death. To actually worsen things in order to prepare the population for mass vaccination. I think this is actually intentional. So we went through hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Clearly there were smear campaigns and FDA statements and, and, and for ivermectin, even the American Medical Association launched an official campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin. Abolish the use. You know, there's, there's a couple dozen countries out there where ivermectin is official government guidelines. Use it. But then it didn't stop there. Uh, we have uh, big advances in virucidal nasal washes, povidone iodine, hydrogen peroxide, huge advance, probably the biggest advance of the whole pandemic, because now it applies to all kinds of viral upper respiratory tract infections. And then we have physician email newsletter campaigns saying iodine solutions, uh, 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 doctors pushing this, patients will swallow it and die of iodine toxicity. So like, what? starts coming down, like you know, having a negative uh, effect even on these washes. Now bring in Paxlovid, the Pfizer drugs, tested in a randomized trial, Epic HR trial, several thousand people, safe and effective, reduces the risk of hospitalization and death. Now it's a, kind of a quirky trial because it's only Pfizer 
employed doctors or formerly employed doctors who are on the author group, no independent authors, that's a bit worrisome. And the average age in the Paxiblade trial, 45. Typically don't treat 45-year-olds. You know, we're interested in 85-year-olds, right? But take it as it is, look safe and effective, kind of a complicated uh, combination of uh, nelfenpiravir and ritonavir, uh, a novel protease inhibitor plus an older protease inhibitor that we use for HIV, fine. But now Paxlovid is being undermined. And in fact, Paxlovid now, there are there was a paper already from the Boston VA about Paxlovid rebound. Uh, vaccine uh, proponent and developer Peter Hotez at Baylor College of Medicine Houston gets COVID himself, a quadruple jab probably, gets COVID himself, treats with Paxlovid, and then after the five-day course actually has a worsening in his symptomatology. So now we hear about Paxlovid rebound, and then the medical literature has been filled with news that Paxlovid failed in a prevention trial. So now Paxlovid being undermined. Now the Merck has a drug with Ridgeback Pharmaceuticals called Molnupiravir. Very early on, there are papers written, Molnupiravir will cause cancer mutations. That is oncogenic in theory. So that's out there. So you don't hear anything about the Merck drug. That's had a market entry, negative downdraft there. And the most frustrating example of suppression of early treatment, in my view, are the blockbuster drugs. The real gold of Operation Warp Speed is the monoclonal antibodies. Safe and effective. Every single trial shows that they're safe and effective, starting with the Lilly drug, and then Regeneron, and then with GlaxoSmithKline, back to Lilly. We even have AstraZeneca dual monoclonal antibodies that we can use in, in place of a vaccine. We can actually give them as a depot, and they provide for protection every six months. No word of these. Uh, no public service announcements. There's been a hide-and-go-seek on where the monoclonal antibodies are at any given time. It still goes on today. Based on theoretical con uh, considerations of mutation of the spike protein, they're pulled off the market. Oh, the spike protein mutated. They're not going to work now. Pull them off the market. Well, the spike protein mutates. They don't pull off Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson. Despite tons of evidence that the vaccines are losing efficacy, no, we keep pushing those full steam ahead, but let's remove any ther therapy that could potentially help our seniors. The monoclonal antibodies are pulled. It gets so frustrating, Ron DeSantis basically goes nuts. He starts a campaign. Where are these antibodies? Where's the supply chain? We hear from the Biden administration, all kinds of different news uh, about red states and blue states and who's getting monoclonal antibodies. To this day, I can tell you as a practicing doctor, it is a hunt to try to find monoclonal antibodies when we need it in our high-risk patients. I am telling you, the suppression of early treatment is global. It's against all the products, whether they're repurposed generics or whether they're high-tech new drugs, I think, to promote the vaccines. It, that's fascinating. I, I was going to say, John, that I, clearly the biopharmaceutical complex, you would say, is involved in this. That's, I mean, you might expect that they would be against the repurposed drugs. You know, they're generic. They cost next to nothing. There's no profit motive. But ostensibly with these, you know, the monoclonal antibodies, that's seems like big money to me, right? I mean, maybe I don't know what big money is really, but, um, or, or Paxlovid or all of these, well, these let, are let expensive. Me just give these you are one, expensive. Let me give you another follow-on example. This just happened in my practice. Scalping. Scalping. The monoclonal antibodies, don't forget, are pre-purchased by the U.S. government. They should be offered free of charge. So I have a sick senior citizen, just had recent surgery. I'm worried about her. She's got severe symptoms. I send her to a trusted place that I've sent patients to in the past to get the new Lilly uh, monoclonal antibody, bart bartoptimib. 
And she goes there and they said, well, it's going to be $1,200 scalping. We haven't seen any scalping with the vaccines, have we? You go into to, uh, to a vaccine center, they say, listen, we'll, we'll have to charge you 1200 for this vaccine. Oh, no. The vaccines are poured on free of charge. You can go to DFW Airport and get a vaccine there if you want to. They're giving vaccines to people before they get on flights. They're giving, you know, CVS and Walgreens have been running vaccine ads on their uh, uh, phone trees before they were even... Uh, reported out in clinical trials. It was a fait accompli that it was going to be a vaccine-only strategy, and even the emergency use authorized products were not going to receive any limelight, any public service announcements. They were never going to be assembled in any type of meaningful uh, profiles, and they were going to be undermined, and they still are undermined today, I think, to promote a vaccine agenda. Yeah, I, th I think what what's puzzling is is the, the existing therapeutics departments of these pharmaceutical companies. They too are undermined, which is puzzling to people. But I think we should un we should recognize that these pharmaceutical companies are avid and willing participants in this bigger biopharmaceutical complex scheme. But that doesn't mean that every single department is being favored and pushed forward. What we're seeing that's constantly being pushed forward is this monolithic vaccine solution to, to all public health problems. This is what these international foundations, the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the big money guys are, are, have put all of their money on, on vaccines. and. Um, we document in the book another thing that will probably come as a surprise to a lot of readers is that the NIAID, Anthony Fauci's outfit at the National Institutes of Health, is, is actually not only a um, grant, a, a, a source of funding for these messenger RNA vaccines, the NIAID also co-owns co the patents. So they're an economic benefit. That federal institute is also an economic beneficiary of the royalties. Um, the other thing that we go into is there is a very long-standing personal and business partnership that's explicitly described as such between Anthony Fauci and, and Bill Gates. Um, they actually had a meeting at Bill Gates's um, grand house near Seattle back in 2000. In 2000. So for 20 years they've been they've been working together. So it's a it's a complex of public private partnerships and the pharmaceutical companies are, are just one part of this. Fascinating. We've been listening to an interview on American thought leaders and credit given to Jan Yakovic and the Epoch Times for American thought leaders and putting together this wonderful program. Go to Epoch Times TV if you want to watch the rest of this interview. Uh, I wanted to give you this preview on Pulse and then give you a few quick updates uh, while we have enough time on the program. Uh, regarding monkeypox, uh, Dursky et al., MMWR in 2018, summarized uh, data from 1970 to 2017, over a thousand cases per year in monkeypox, majority of the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Congo Basin, uh, T-pox, the oral drug to treat it effectively was available to Congo in 2021. Uh, T-pox is available IV and orally in the United States. It's been used to treat cases. There was a case last year in Dallas 
in August of 2021, summarized in MMWR by Rao and colleagues, April 22nd, 2022, uh, treated successfully with TPOX. Despite many, many contacts, this gentleman from Africa did not spread it to anyone. We have uh, a paper from Menage and colleagues, the June 3rd, 2022 MMWR. There are 17 cases in the U.S., uh, no fatalities. All appear to be easily treatable, either treated at home or in confinement with TPOX. And then we heard last week of um, a case of monkeypox in Dallas. And again, this person is being treated at home with the TPOX medication. There uh, is uh, news that, uh, and you've heard it before, that the Genios vaccine, which is a live attenuated vaccine for monkeypox, actually has received an order for 13 million doses from the U.S. government. Despite scientific rationale that we need widespread vaccination, uh, we understand from papers by, from Beer and Simpson that individuals over age 50 have protection from the smallpox vaccine, that monkeypox is not very transmissible, it's been reported in Young men who have sex with other men, gay or bisexuals, also can occur in women. And that uh, takes a lot of contact, breaking the blisters, these large pustules on the arms, trunks, legs, and on the palms, or salivary or um, sexual contact. It's not spread readily through the air, and it doesn't appear as if masks or travel restrictions would have any role. Having said that, I received an announcement from a meeting in Mexico, which is being shut down because of concerns regarding monkeypox and air travel in Mexico. Mexico has two cases. So it's relatively clear that the system now has been primed or juiced with fear, in this case fear on monkeypox as an uh, basically a viral pandemic opportunity. Monkeypox has a special place because it's related to smallpox. Smallpox has been uh, the subject of bioterrorism planning discussions and smallpox does exist in a few small labs in the United States. And there was a case of smallpox reported by uh, Kernan and colleagues. And that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021, a 28-year-old woman who had orbital smallpox and was uh, treated uh, relatively easy, easily. Um, now, uh, regarding the Genios vaccine, um, I did... Uh, want to um, uh, update you uh, on that. There was uh, an opportunity to attempt using uh, a different smallpox vaccine uh, years ago in 20, uh, 2003, where they vaccinated 230,734 U.S. military members and 18 cases of myocarditis occurred with a, um, uh, with a smallpox uh, vaccine. And so uh, there's a great concern that with the monkeypox vaccine, which is similar, that there would be myocarditis cases. And in fact, Kernan has published a myocarditis case in a patient who was in one of the preclinical studies or clinical studies with the Genios vaccine. And Genios vaccine did record elevations in cardiac troponins in a large fraction of patients who received it. That's the blood test to show cardiac injury. So. Uh, I'm telling you as a doctor, be wary of the Genios and smallpox vaccine. If anyone listening contracted smallpox or thought they uh, uh, saw somebody was with um, monkeypox, that we would use Ticovirimac or Tpox available through the CDC 
and readily treat it. I just have a few uh, minutes left for frequent questions that we get on Pulse. Normally I do this with Malcolm, but Malcolm is uh, out of the office this week. The most common question I have is, uh, is there any detox for the messenger RNA, adenoviral DNA, or the spike protein after I take a vaccine? The answer is no, there's no uh, detox. Fortunately, majority of people who take these vaccines don't have any side effects, I think largely because the genetic material goes bad uh, and is not installing the genetic code for the spike protein very successfully. It's one of the reasons why these platforms failed in, in gene replacement therapy trials. However, some do get a good installation. I think those who have tremendous spike protein production are the ones who develop severe complications. So that is my answer to the most commonly asked question, which is a question of buyer's remorse. Remember, if you're regretful after taking a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, and you'll have another opportunity in six months since the vaccines don't last very long, and that one would have to take another one within six months to maintain any type of program for immunization against SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, failing uh, to reduce transmission of the virus, failing to stop new cases of the virus, particularly Omicron, and failing to prevent hospitalization and death across the board. Uh, the final announcement is the World Council for Health, led by Dr. Catherine Lindy, Lindley, who's been on the McCullough Report in the past, issued a recall for all the COVID-19 vaccines that was posted June 11th, 2022. So go on the World Council for Health website and review the data. So there's not only the press release for the recall, but also a very good pharmacovigilance report on the data, all the safety systems they looked at, what were the results that they found, and what's the rationale for pulling these off the market. Uh, To me, the report looks excellent, it's well-founded. The first calls to remove vaccines off the market started out of France in March of 2021. There was a paper by Bruno and colleagues in May of 2021. I was the second author on paper calling for either a pause or removal based on safety. Then we had the evidence-based consulting group in uh, June of 2021 recommending to the MHRA to remove the vaccines. World Council for Health called for an official pause in the vaccines in the fall of 2021 after that group was organized. World Council for Health, by the way, represents 70 grassroots organizations and freedom organizations uh, worldwide. And then finally now the World Council for Health in call to uh, physically remove these from the market June 11th, 2022. All of this is happening just ahead of the US FDA pediatric meetings Uh, So we look forward to seeing what those results will be. Uh, We couldn't have two different counter currents right against each other. One worldwide group saying pull the uh, vaccines off the market. One U.S. regulatory group looking at uh, almost certainly approving these vaccines for uh, childhood and um, going from uh, infants age six months up to five years and then uh, for Pfizer and then from age uh, 6 to age 11 for Moderna. Thus the times we live in, uh, folks, and so I want to thank you so much for joining us on Pulse, and uh, we look forward to returning next week, taking your questions with Malcolm Out Loud, the voice of the nation. In the meantime, this has been Dr. Peter McCullough for Pulse. Always a beat ahead.